Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I'm going to read a couple of verses out of the middle of this chapter. However, our subject matter will be the whole chapter. Okay? Amen. Acts 16, 14 rather, verses 16 and 17. With that being said, you might just want to follow along in your Bibles tonight. Amen. For context and content. Amen. For this evening. Verse 16 says, Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. It says in verse 17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. Tonight, I would like to entitle this lesson, Not Without Witness. Not Without Witness. Amen. I'm going to pray to the Lord. He would help us here in the next few moments this evening. Father, I'm so gracious, Lord God, that you, God, would choose to have us as your people. God, I'm so thankful, Lord, tonight, Jesus, for those that are here. God, I pray, Lord, you would strengthen those that are tired in body and, God, perhaps overwhelmed in mind. I pray, Jesus, touch the physical bodies, Lord, that we've already brought before you. I pray, Lord, this evening, God, bring enlightenment, Lord Jesus, upon us, God, for your word. Will not fail, Lord, to thank you, Jesus, God, for what you're able to do, Lord, through your word. Thank you and praise you for it. Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight, not without witness. Chapter 14 is in many ways just basically a repetition of previous chapters that have come before at least the scenario to a certain degree is a repetition even of the last chapter that we got done studying. Seems as though Paul and Barnabas carried this uh, pattern, as you would call it, with them, what they had done before in Antioch of Poseidon. They are going to do in Iconium. They are going to do in Lystra. They are going to do in Derby. these other cities that uh, they are to visit. Uh, whenever they go into a city and there is a synagogue present, that's going to be the first place that they go. That's just their pattern. They'll go there first. They will preach a similar message to what they have preached before, as they did in Antioch, Poseidon. And they will be met, as it would seem, they will be met with some similar results. Those results being twofold. Number one, there will be some people that will believe. And number two, there will be others that will not believe. Amen. And I guess that's the same pattern that we hold to still today. Uh, there will be some that will and some that will not. Yet the unbelieving Jews in this case, and as was the case in other episodes, uh, they will in turn stir up some of the Gentiles in a negative way against Paul and Barnabas, against the messengers, and even at times, even as we've seen in the last chapter, against the message. Now, we must remember uh, this evening from last week that these unbelieving Jews, or I call them the disobedient Jews, are those who put the word of God from them. They put the word of God from them. They are the ones that by their own choice, by their own actions. They had already, as the scripture turned it, 
judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And what it seems like they're trying to do is they're trying to superimpose their decision on others. And they don't want anybody else to have what they've excluded themselves from. And that's just a, a peculiar thing. I don't, I don't want it, but I don't want anybody else to want it either. Yet that seems to be the condition here of the Jews. And through all of this, what I believe, though, is surfacing through the word of God and even Acts 14. Through all of this, what I believe is surfacing is, for the Jews, that is, these unbelieving Jews, is a real resentment and bitterness that these Jews had to the way of life they had known before grace come about. In other words, uh, they and those before them, their ancestry had been challenged to live by the law of Moses. That was the prescription for God's people, to live by the law of Moses, a life of Judaism. But now, amen, through the apostles and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a new, the Bible calls it a new and a better covenant, a new and a better covenant that is called grace, amen, that fulfills all of the Old Testament law. But I think they're a little resentful and there's a little bitterness in their spirit thinking that up to this point in time they have lived by the law of Moses and now there's something better and some people are coming to the Lord at this stage of the game and, and getting to go by the way of grace and never had entered back at this stage of the game whenever it was a game of the law of Moses. And so they're begrudging the fact, man, we've walked through the deep waters and our, we've had mud in our shoes, so on and so forth with the law of Moses and now we have the freedom of grace and I just can't stand it that some people are just now getting in it and they're only exposed to the grace. <laughs> and so it's almost like the Jews are begrudging the Gentiles to a certain degree because now they can come and it's they are saved by grace through faith. Amen. And they can enter on in into the joys, if you will, of living for the Lord. Amen. And so here's the thing, though. The Jews, though, also are benefiting by this word of grace that now has come. They're benefiting, too, by this new covenant and this better covenant. The opportunity has been extended to each and every one of them. But the problem for the Jews is this. They can't release the years that it was solely just a walk of law. They can't release the time that they already invested in in that type of walk. And so then rather than being thankful for the grace of God, they wanted everyone, including the Gentiles, to walk the same path that they had walked. In other words, guys, we're, we're, we're glad that this grace has come, but in order for you to really do this, we think you need to go back and walk where we've been in order to get and have the opportunity that we all have now. Someone say, amen. Now, if we think about this, Jew or Gentile, I don't care who you are, you should be very appreciative of the work of grace. As a matter of fact, if anybody should be, have any appreciation for the work of grace, it should have been those who had walked the walk of the law of Moses. The civil law, the ceremonial law, the keeping of all these feast days and fast days and bringing the right 
animal at the right time on the right day to offer unto the Lord, so on and so forth. But you know what? That seems to be the problem, not just then, but even now. The Bible states of, he, the Lord states this in a parable, but in Matthew 20 and verse number 9, there's a parable. I'm not going to read the total parable, but I'm going to start in verse number 9. It's whenever um, a householder was going out to find people to work in his vineyard. He was going out at different times of day to have people work in his vineyard. He went out firstly and found some people, got them to work in his vineyard. And then I think the Bible says that he went at the sixth hour. He went at the ninth hour. He went at the eleventh hour. He got all these people to work in his vineyard at different stages through the day. Yet at the end of the day, they all got paid the same thing. And this is how it goes in Matthew 20 and verse 9. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, those that were first hired, when they first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. So you see, we, we're seeing the 11th hour. Those that just worked for a very small, minuscule part of the day get paid a penny. And those others that have been here at the very start of the day, they're looking at that and thinking, you know what? If they're getting paid a penny, we should be getting paid a whole lot more than a penny because they got here late in the day. But verse 11 says, and when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. Thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? We'll look at that. We'll look at that in here in a little bit. He says, Take that thine is and go thy way and i will give unto this last even as unto thee now let's apply the parable to the scenario that's going on between the jews and the gentiles see the jews the real the real crux of it all the jews are upset because the 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 perks that they are getting the privileges that they are getting the opportunities that they are giving getting are also being extended to the gentiles without the Gentiles ever having lived underneath the ceremonial law of Moses. And so they can't stand the fact we lived under that. We're both entering into this time of grace. You didn't live under that. You get the same perk, privilege, and opportunity that I did. And so what the problem really is is that the Jews needed an attitude adjustment. The Jews needed an attitude adjustment because they had fallen into the trap that they received what they did because they deserved it. Huh? It's really what we're coming down to. We deserve it because we came through this, but you don't. So they got an attitude problem. Now look, back in Matthew 20 and verse 2, this parable. Remember the Lord, the, the good man of the house told him, said, friend, I don't do you no wrong. He said, did we not agree? For a penny. If you look back at the parable, Matthew 20 and, ver Matthew 20 and verse 2, the first laborers that come, amen, and the goodman of the house hires them to be in his vineyard, they, they make a contractual agreement that they would work for the householder for a day and get paid a penny. They contracted agreement. We'll work for you a day, and it will, it'll be a penny a day. However... Every other group that comes after the first group, those at the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and even those at the eleventh hour, 
They contracted, if you will, something with the householder, but it was after this manner. Whatever is right to you, householder. So the first group had something firm. They said, a penny a day. Everybody past them said, whatever's right to you, householder, you pay us at the end of the day. What you have is in the first episode with the first group of people contracting for a penny a day. That places the trust in an individual's day's work. I work a day. I work a day. I get a penny. All right? But the second episode is for who or whatsoever is right. And whenever they say whatsoever right, that places the trust in the householder. You understand the dynamic here. The first group of people is placing the trust and the dependence on their day's work. The other people are placing their trust and, and, and dependence upon whatever deems right by the householder or the good men of the house. So at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the householder did likewise, the Bible says in verse 5 of Matthew 20. At the 11th hour, again, it was emphasized in verse 7, whatsoever is right to the householder. And so the first group of laborers, they are upset. Man, they're fighting mad to no, no, no. Uh, evidently, they, they are ready to just, you know, blow their top with the householder whenever they realize that those who came last got the same pay as they had contracted for. They said, you're making them our equal. We, we have borne, here it is, we've borne the burden and the heat of the day. The first laborers, though, have the wrong view. They had the wrong view. They see all of this based upon their work and their labor. But the real point of view is this, the goodness of the householder, the goodness of the good man of the house. No record is given, again, no record is given of those in the sixth hour or the ninth hour or the eleventh hour fussing and cussing among themselves. We don't, at least it's not, we don't have it recorded in scripture. We don't have the six hour folks saying, my goodness, yeah, you really, you really gave these 11th hour people something, but we're going to know you don't see it among them. Why? Because their dependence wasn't on themselves. It was householder, whatever's right. Their trust was in him. And so, see, this thing starts to break apart even a little bit more, amen, in Acts chapter 14. And it will in Acts chapter number 15. The Jews couldn't stand it. We're getting the same opportunity that the Gentiles are getting. But they had the wrong point of view. They were looking at all the work that we have done, all the labor we had done up to this point in time. Whenever it came to the Gentiles, it's just whatever's right to you, Lord. Whatever is right, folks, whenever we come and meet at the foot of the cross, that's really what it comes down to. Whatever is right to the good men of the house. I don't care. I don't know what your line or path may have seemed like up to the point of conversion in truth. It really don't matter. Please don't begrudge the one that just, you know, cut his teeth on the back of an apostolic pew, although you had to go through five churches to get to a church that preached truth. Please don't begrudge them. It all comes down to whatever was right by the householder. Now we have the same perk, same privilege, same opportunity. And I thank God, whoever we are, that we do. That we do. And so... This is all going on, and they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, evidently good enough that they think they're going to do something to Paul. 
and Barnabas. And the Bible says, although there's this persecution and there's this stirring up, Paul and Barnabas doesn't start packing their bags and putting everything and getting ready to leave. The Bible says they were there in verse 3. They were there for a long time. Paul and Barnabas, they've been too far in this journey to understand this one thing. They knew that they learned that if they stopped every time there was opposition and they stopped every time there was persecution, that nothing would be accomplished for the kingdom. They didn't start packing their bags. They said, listen, this isn't our first rodeo. We've been met with opposition before. And I, I would just guess that perhaps in the future we're going to be met with opposition, amen, and persecution again. And so if we're going to stop every time that happens, we're not going to be able to propel this message beyond Jerusalem and here and there. We're not going to be able to see more so safe. We're going to have to work in spite of persecution, in spite of Opposition, And so the Bible says as a result of that, they stayed there long. They keep on preaching the word of the Lord and their word gave testimony to the word of his grace. Again, it's specified there his grace and not his law. And the Bible says the preaching, we understand that the preaching in verse three of the gospel was confirmed with signs and wonders. As they were preaching, evidently there was some type of great signs and wonders that were done by their hands. And that's God just saying amen to his word. I think I told you last week, I'll go there this week in particular, Mark 16 and verse 20. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, and they went forth, the Bible says, preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Signs and wonders is just God, amen, in his own word. Amen. And so Jew, Gentile, didn't matter what segment of society you were from, when the sign and the wonder came, that should have opened some eyes that were not open formally, that you know what? These guys got exactly what's needed. This is truth. This is right. I don't care what the Jews are trying to convince us of otherwise. This is right. And so they continued. They continued to experience a dividing, if you will, of the people. Remember last week our subject matter was the great divide. So there's this continuation of the dividing of the people. Some held with the Jews. Some held with the apostles. And whenever Jesus shows up, there's going to be division. You know, you know, that kind of sounds a little peculiar, don't it? It's like unity. No, whenever he shows up, division's happening. John 7, 43, he said, the Bible says, so there was a division among the people because of him. The him they were talking about was Jesus Christ. It says in Luke 12, 51, suppose ye, he says, that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. Whenever he shows up, people are going to fall on both sides of the fence. Again, it's going to be those with the Jews, those that are not appreciative of it, and others that are appreciative of it. And so these people are enraged against the message of Christ. They are enraged against this word of grace. There's a grouping of Gentiles getting together, a grouping of Jews getting together. The Bible says they're wanting to despitefully use Paul and Barnabas. They're wanting to stone Paul and Barnabas. And whenever Paul and Barnabas became aware of this, they said, we're going to leave Iconium and we're going to go to Lystra and Derby along with some other regions. But look! They didn't go over here to Lister to go on vacation. They were not idle. Matter of fact, Lister was only about 30 miles from Iconium, and so they traveled just that short distance from where they were wanting to be stoned by the people, where the people were wanting to stone them, rather, and they went there, and what they start to do? They started to play, preach the gospel again. 
Why didn't they stay? Well, you know, there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. And you better off to discern the difference <laughs> earlier than later. So evidently, there's not a synagogue at Lystra. So they keep with their pattern, but there's a little change. And that is, since there's no per se synagogue that we read of, there is a man there that's been crippled from his mother's womb, has never walked before. And Paul, in his uh, preaching and his going there, he senses that this man has faith to be healed, and he commands this man to stand up. You better be with God whenever you command a lame man to stand up. He commanded the lame man to stand up, and he perceived he had faith, so the man stood up. Matter of fact, the Bible says that he leaped and that he walked, all right? He leaped and he walked, and there were people that, that took in what was taking place. A man that never walked now is walking by the command of this man, and here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas very quickly understand that they are, they are in a pagan society. Because people start gathering around them and begin to ascribe God status to mere men. You know you're among a bunch of pagans when they want to ascribe a God status to a man. We live in a pagan society. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, because there's a lot of ascribing, if you will, of God statuses to mere men walking among us today. Seems as though that Paul and Barnabas, I'm just kind of doing a narrative here. Is that okay? Paul and Barnabas at first didn't necessarily understand what all these people were talking about. The Bible says they were speaking in the speech of the uh, Lycaonia of that, of that area, of that region. And they must not have been learned in that particular language. And so they're talking about, man, here's that Barnabas guy. That, man, that's Jupiter. And this, this Paul guy over here, that's Mercurius. And these are, these are just false deities, false gods. That's Mercurius over there, Paul, because he's the chief speaker. He has a lot to say. And so all this stuff is going on. And even the priest of Jupiter, this, this god, he says, man, I'm going to go get some oxen, and I'm going to get some garland, and we're going to offer sacrifices unto these men, and probably because uh, this was the first activity they had ever had concerning their gods of these two. <laughs> he said, this is Jupiter, and this is, this is Mercurius, and the priest over the temple says, my God, let's get some sacrifices and garland. We never had this happen before. Because they were false gods. See, we never, we never had this happen before. We're going to do some sacrifice. We're going to do some offering to these deities that these men are them. But Paul and Barnabas come to understand with their speech and what it was translated to them, what they were saying and where this happened. They went out and they stopped the people, stopped these people from going through with what they were going to do. And so here came really a trial. Now you say, well, they've been under persecution. No, this is a real trial for Paul and Barnabas. And it's what are you going to do whenever men try to praise and compliment you? Man, they spoke in tongues. They seen, they seen the lame man get up and all this stuff. And they seen signs, miracles, and wonders. But, honey, you're about ready to see probably the greatest miracle of all whenever men can take the compliments of other men and give them to God. And so they come forward. They said, you need to stop all this. And they took all that. And you look in verse 15 of Acts 14. They give and they turn all of those accolades unto the Lord. They turn them to the Lord. And they tell those men, guys, we are men just like your men. We're men just like you. 
And for that matter, you don't need to worship any false god. But you need to worship the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things. See, Paul and Barnabas understands they're in a different environment. They are dealing with these people differently than what they had dealt with the Jews. Whenever they start dealing with the Jews about the gospel, they start talking about Jewish history, Jewish legacy, and the Jews are all about that. But whenever you start dealing with Gentiles, you don't start telling them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all Jews. And they don't really carry no clout for a Gentile. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You want to talk to Jews like that? That's great. You go with it. But when you start talking about Gentiles, you can't start talking about Jewish history. Jewish ancestry, that don't mean anything to them. But what Paul did do is he reached back and started talking about the God of creation. The God that made the heaven. The God that made the seas. The God that made the earth. Because the Gentiles can identify with that. Amen. They go all the way back to the start of a creator. That's one thing every human being can that's uh, exposed to anything knows something about is the idea of creation. Even if they are evolutionists, there is some concept of creation that they're aware of. And so rather than going down the Jewish side, we're going down the Gentile side. The God that created. Oh, we, we can latch on to that. The Bible says then in verse number 16, this is where I started tonight. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In other words, boys, God did not give all of the nations of the world a written law or a ceremonial law or a religious law like he gave Israel through the law of Moses. But although he didn't give all nations that type of law, he still did not leave those nations without a witness. He did not leave them without a law. Because the law that God gave to those nations that were not Israel were a natural law. The law of rain from heaven. Seasons, if you will, for fruitfulness of the crops that they bore. He gave them a natural law. These are some verses in Scripture that I, I think that are important enough. That if you don't have them underlined, highlighted, or inscribed on the front somewhere in your Bible pages, you need to put down. Romans 1 and verse 18, the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and I've spoke these scriptures before, and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them for the invisible things of him, that is God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, everything concerning God, his eternal power, his Godhead, etc., is all 
clearly seen. Those invisible things are clearly seen in the things that are made. Verse 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified not, not glorified him, not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. I want to read just the same passage, just from a couple other versions, because God did not leave the other nations without a witness. The witness that God gave them was the natural laws. The witness that God gave them was the heaven above them, the stars, the sun, the moon, the galaxies. Amen. All these other things were witnesses, if you were, declarers of a God. Declarers of a God. Amen. Even the Godhead, even eternal power. I'm reading from the Living Bible. Same verses. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, evil men who push away the truth from them. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power so that they will have no excuse when they stand before the God at judgment day. I'm going to read from the Amplified. For God does not overlook sin, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them in their inner consciousness, for God made it evident to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through his workmanship, all his creation, the wonderful things that he has made, so that they who fail to believe and trust in him are without excuse and without defense. In other words, none of us necessarily have to have anybody come and express anything to us about God. But we're already guilty about knowing about God because of what is created around us. Now, folks, that is heavy. I don't know if you understand how heavy that is, but that is heavy. What I'm telling you tonight is this. Although we are trying our best, to go into the old, preach the gospel to the whole world, and we send missionaries, so and so forth, try to do that to the best of our ability. If by chance the gospel doesn't get to a lone stranger concerning that there is a God, they will be without excuse on judgment day because the surroundings that they live in themselves declare that there is one. If you don't take that, then take, if you will, Psalms 19. I think I, I, I'm reading here, amen, from the Amplified. You can read it from King James. But the Bible says, David said, the heavens, say, declares glory. But the Amplified says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. They are marvelous display of his craftsmanship. Day and night they keep on telling about God. Without a sound or a word, silent in the skies, their message reaches out to all the world. The sun lives in the heavens where God placed it. David said, the heavens declare his glory. And it's saying night and day, all of these things that are created are constantly speaking. Though they have not a voice, their existence themselves is a voice that there is a God. And so Paul starts here at the Gentiles concerning nature because although, they, although the Gentiles did not have a law of Moses or a ceremonial life law per se, they had the same thing and same privilege that every person on the earth has, and that's the law of nature that declares there is a 
So he deals with the Jews and Gentiles different. When he comes to the Gentiles in Exodus, or actually Acts 17, uh, speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill, they're Gentile people. He says in, in, in Acts 17, verse 30, thank you. He says, in the times of this ignorance, talking about them making these altars to unknown gods, having this plethora of gods that they're serving. He said, the times of this ignorance, God winked at, God overlooked. But now, commandeth all men everywhere to repent. In other words, he said, there was a time that God winked at this nonsense and that God overlooked this ignorance of the Jews due to them not having, if you will, a written or ceremonial law. He says, but now he's holding everybody responsible for the natural law that they have. The natural law of the heavens declaring that there is a God, a revelation of the invisible things by the visible thing. He says, and so everything's going to be held accountable. Now, men must repent. See, the Gentile then could on the other, the Jews saying, you know, well, bless God, they get the privilege of grace at this point in time. The Gentiles could say, well, we didn't have the privilege of a Mosaic law to bring us to this point. Maybe not, but you had a natural law. Okay, consider Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 13. So now we all got to repent. Jewish men, Gentile men, matters not. We all got to repent, likewise. It says in Romans 2, verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just, just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Look, notice, notice the phrasing here. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, the law of Moses, that is, do by nature the things contained in the law, the law of Moses, these, having not the law, the law of Moses, are a law unto themselves. So we had some Gentiles, never had the Mosaic law, never had all these things concerning that were written in the Mosaic law. But there are some of them that have lived their life as though they had the law. And so they have become a law to themselves. Have you ever, you, we've all said it sometimes, there's some people not in the apostolic church that would make some Christians look bad. You know what they're doing? They're abiding by a natural law. There's people that's living better moral lives than apostolic people because they understand this concept of there being a God. And by doing so, they become a law unto themselves. Their children then emulate that maybe even not so much because they have the realization but because their parents before them live such a life might not have no church association whatsoever but have some scruples and morals he said they, they are alone to themselves verse 15 which shew the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now, the Jew, on the other hand, consider here with me, the Jew has both the written law of Moses and the natural law. The natural law is not taken from anybody. But the Jew has the, the, the written law of Moses and the natural law that was given to them. And all they, although they heard the law of Moses and witnessed the law of nature, neither benefited them. Because they were hearers and observers only and not doers of either law. 
<laughs> but the Gentiles, void of the law of Moses, had the law of nature. And that law was declaring the glory of the Lord. And they started to practice things in their life that was even in the law of Moses because they observed and they practiced the idea and concept that there was a God. And the Bible says in, in, in Romans 2 that they become accountable to one another by their lives, even to the place of accusing others by their life and excusing others by their life because they had responded. They had responded to an unwritten, yet observable law of nature. Let me tell you, friend, I don't want to stand in judgment someday. I don't want to stand in judgment someday next to somebody that picked up on something through the law of nature. That 30-some-odd years of Pentecost, I couldn't get straight in my head. I really, I told my wife uh, earlier in this week, I said, I don't think there's really much here in chapter 14. It's going to just kind of be just a, a mud puddle that we'll walk through. And then I came back and revisited it again today, and it exploded. And so here we are. Sorry for the shrapnel and the debris. It's exploded. Amen. <laughs> so he did not leave himself without witness. He did not leave himself without witness. Verse 19 and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now listen now, Paul and Barnabas is in Lystra. People from Antioch, Poseidon, and Iconium, two places they had already previously visited, show up at Lystra. And they're persuading the people and having stoned Paul. Now back at Antioch, they were talking about stoning them and Paul and Barnabas left. Well, guess what? Trouble followed them. Followed them to to, 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 to Lystra, along with people from Antioch, they came here, they stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Now, these folks are bent on causing trouble, I'm telling you. They are bent on causing some hardship for Paul and Barnabas. Amen. So I guess since they, they weren't able to despitefully use them and stone them and Iconium, they say, man, we got unfinished work here. Let's follow them 30 miles to Lister and let's take care of business. And that's exactly what they did. They stoned him right there. They stirred up the people. Here they are. Man, they got a big spoon. Everywhere they go, they're stirring. I mean, should have been called the spoons rather than the Jews. I mean, they're coming and they're stirring up problems again. And it's just like, again, reading the same story in Lystra, just in a different location. Every time that seems to be the play, the, the case, same story just different location and this time they've stoned Paul they put him out of the city supposing he was dead now Paul talks about this whole scenario in his personal portfolio in 2nd Corinthians eleven twenty-five. there's only one time Paul ever talked about being stoned so this must have been it when he goes through his his portfolio and perils among countrymen this and that he said thrice was I beaten with rods once was I stoned I mean Lister got into the pages of Paul's portfolio for something bless God it was for being stoning the poor guy he said, they stoned me then, and I suffered shipwreck, so on and so forth. So he talked about this later. Now, the Bible says that they supposed, they supposing he had been dead. I have no definite answer. I wasn't there, was you? But Paul was either dead and revived, or he never was truly dead. But they thought he was close enough to it that he was. Either way, I don't care if you're almost dead or dead. Getting up is miraculous. I don't care how you cut it. 
getting up is miraculous. And here's the next miraculous thing. He went right back into the city that just got done stoning him. Now, he needs a good blessing, Jesus. He went right back into the same city that just stoned him, and he didn't leave till the next day. The next day he left, and he went to Derby, the Bible says. Now, 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 look at this. Look at this. The dynamics of the ministry here are no better seen yet in these few verses of this story. Because in Iconium, listen, is where the man that was lame from his mother's womb arose. That was miraculous. And what happened? All the people of the city, these men are gods. Jupiter, Paul and Barton, Jupiter, Macarius, these men are gods. And they are endeavoring and attempting to fall down and worship these guys. And the same people that had just done this moments ago had now stoned these guys. There is no better description of ministry than that. On one hand, the same people that will praise you in one moment will be eager to stone you in the next moment. The pendulum swings both ways. You are, let me just get frank and real here for a moment. You are the greatest pastor one moment, and the next moment you're ignorant and you don't know what you're talking about. Welcome to the ministry. And we're just as crazy as Paul. We get back up and go to the same people to try to help them and help the ones that hurt us. Now, you coughing or laughing because I'm about ready to give interpretation. <laughs> That's right. And so... Get tickled here, hallelujah. <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. When they finished at Derby, we're not talking about Kentucky. They leave there and they go back. And again, this is just baffling, but this is the heart of the missionaries. They go back and they revisit all these cities that they had preached the word of God in. Spell it out a little bit more. They go back and they visit all these cities that they, there was an uproar over them to begin with. Some of them were expelled out of the city. Some of them were seeking to stone. They go back to every single one of these cities that their, their, their faces and names are on the most wanted poster, you know, within their city. They're going back to all of these places. And whenever they go back to these places, this is important. I'll try to wrap things up in the next few minutes. Next minutes. They go back to all these places. And they go back with, with, with four, four main objectives because people have, have come to know the Lord. But we can't just bring people to a place of knowing God and receiving salvation and not doing anything else with them. That's right. They went back with four, four main objectives, verses 23 through 23. It lists them as this. They went back and revisited these places for the purpose of confirming the souls, exhorting them to continue in the faith, they set elders up, so they brought some organization. I know we don't want to talk about that, but it's true. They brought some organization, and they commended them unto the Lord. So they came back to these. Some of these people had the Holy Ghost now. They're filled with the Spirit. It's kind of like, again, you know, now what? And so they're going to confirm 
the souls. Now, what they're doing, they're not, okay, yeah, he has the Holy Ghost. That's, that's not what we're talking about concerning the word confirm. In the Greek, the meaning of this word confirm is this, to support further, to strengthen, to support one on something like a stake for a vine or a stick for an aged person. In other words, they propped them up. They propped them up. As a matter of fact, one of the two Greek root words that the word translated confirm comes from means to turn resolutely in a certain direction. Do you remember last week when I talked a little bit about that concept of those that were ordained for eternal life? Remember? And it was kind of this concept right here of setting them in a direction, in a certain direction direction resolutely well this is what's happening they have come back and they are confirming them they've received the holy ghost now i mean because listen folks if you got a newborn baby do you just like stand it up on its feet and then walk away you don't do a newborn baby like that you do you know you don't do a toddler like that but when they get to the place they can walk right so you just don't just there you go but they've been born and all this stuff going on. And you hold little Johnny. He got his fingers or he has yours. You got him by his side. He's taking a few little. What are you propping him up? And many times, this is the way you do it, right? Because mom or dad's at the other end. Isn't it? Or there, there's a couch or something over there. And they set him up. And they, you know, it's not. If dad's over there, you don't set Johnny like this. You know, that's probably going to be counterproductive. You set him in the direction of where you would like for him to go. Go back to these cities, towns, some of these people receive the Holy Ghost. He said, we're going to confirm the souls. How so? We're going to take these newborn babes in Christ and we're going to set them in the direction we'd like for them to go. See, we, we, We've erred greatly if we just get people filled with the Holy Ghost and don't set their feet in the direction that they need to go. He says, so we're going to come, we're going to, we're going to confirm the souls, and we're going to exhort them to continue in the faith. Exhort, basically, we're going to encourage them to continue in the faith. And Paul just kind of adds in there, we through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, we're going to encourage them to stay in the faith in spite of opposition. Because Paul's just putting a little footnote here for them, boys. Tribulation is part of the journey. Testing is part of the journey to the kingdom of God. So I don't want, I'm telling you this up front, guys, because I don't want whenever it happens, you're like, oh my, I'm a Christian living for God. Why in the world is this happening? This is rare. This is abnormal. This should be taking place. Because a lot of people are sideswiped by the concept in their Christian journey. All of a sudden, oh, no, he's letting them know. He says, continue in the faith in spite, if you will, of the tribulation, in spite of the opposition, because there's going to be things pressing against you. Paul said he pressed toward the mark, evidently, because there's some type of press that he was in. Amen. He pressed toward the mark. There's going to be things pressing towards you from different directions, posing as hindrances, but you got to continue. I exhort you, continue in the faith in spite of opposition. There's going to be opposition. For some, there's going to be more than others. Explain that to me, Brother McGee. Well, there's some things we could look at, but we don't have time to go into that. But nevertheless, 
And then he set up elders. He set up elders in these cities and towns. He, he brought in some leadership in these cities and towns. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse number 40, and I, I'm hurrying, folks. I really, I'm running. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, Paul's speaking in terms of spiritual matters. He's speaking in terms of spiritual things. He's talking about order. He's talking about management and administration of the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about spiritual things. However, I believe, without doubt, if God, through Paul, is telling the Corinthians that spiritual things must be done decently and in order, I, I deduce, without, without any doubt, that natural things then of the church must be held to the same standard. Mm-hmm. That the natural things of the church must be held to the same standard. And so he's ordering elders. He's ordering this isn't done by the seed of their pants. It's done under the guidance of the Bible says fasting and prayer. And they put in elders there some leadership that's going to be helpful for these people that are starting out in their walk in relationship with God. Thank God for leadership. Thank God for people in places in position, amen, to be able to help with these folks. Thank God for that. Thank God for example. Mm-hmm. And then the Bible says, he commended them unto the Lord. I, I, I'm thankful unto the Lord. For objective number four. Because after you've confirmed them and propped them up to the best way that you know how. After you've steered their feet in the right direction that they need to be going through teaching, preaching, seminar, whatever it is. And you set their feet in that way. And you encourage them to walk in that way. And you encourage them to stay the course. And you encourage them to go on in spite of of opposition. And you place people in their life of leadership roles to live their lives, to help to continue guide them and continue to exemplify Christ's likeness in their life. When all of that has been done, the last thing that we just got to do is commit them to the hands of God. Ultimately, they're in the hands of God. Whenever I've done everything I've known to do to bring them from the time that they've been born to this point of heading them in the direction, then I got to step aside and say, God, they're yours. Now, that's hard. That's hard not to intervene, if I could say it like this and just use a real basic understanding, to intervene as a parent. I know some people in here can understand. To intervene as a parent whenever they're no longer in your household, but you would still like to put their feet in the direction they need to be going. As a pastor, you don't know how many times I'm like the last-ditch effort like Jesus was with Judas. His heart's about ready to be filled with Satan, but he's got a hold of his feet. But it comes to the place where you just got to commit them. Because I see them, Sister Margaret, I see them, I've set them in the right direction, but that's not the direction they're going. I see them, Sister Margaret, that I've encouraged them that in spite of opposition, yet when the first wind of opposition comes, they're ready to throw in the towel. You know what? This is a hard thing to do as a pastor, but I just got to commit them, commend them into the hands of the Lord. If you'll stand with me, I'll come to a close. Paul and Barnabas, this ragtag crew here they're going to hit a few other places on their way back home on their way back home to 
Antioch of Syria. They're going to finish their first, their first missionary journey. This is the totality of the first missionary, first missionary journey. They had two others that would follow. They're going to finish that right back where they started from, where they were sent forth from, where they were recommended from. Remember their church laying their hands on them, saying sent by the Holy Ghost. And said, they're going to go right back to that place. And when they get back home, they're going to do what every good missionary does, what every good evangelist does. What happened? What did I used to do when I came back home? Progress reports, right? This is what happened while we were gone. So they come back with their progress report, and they told everything God had done. They bragged God up big time. As a matter of fact, they keep God as the centerpiece of their journey and not themselves. They humbly talk about how God, not they, but God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Those are the exact words they say. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Not us, but God. God opened up that door of faith to the Gentiles. That will open up for us in the next chapter. That little bit of information is going to become a focal point of the next chapter. Because there's going to be then a council that comes together and they're going to ponder and throw back and forth the question. <sighs> they got the same perks, privileges, and all this other stuff that we got, bless God. But now what should we expect of these Gentile believers? Should there be any different expectation for them? And that will take us in the next chapter. And I know I went long tonight. My wife was already prophesying it would probably be the case whenever I said it exploded today at the church. The things I want you to take away here this evening is namely the concept that none, God has not left anybody without a witness. God has not left anybody without a witness. That creation is declaring some things. It's not left any of us without a witness. And then probably the, the second major takeaway for us this evening would also then be these four, these four objectives of what we do with people that's been born again of the water and the spirit after all that's taking place what we do with them we're going to prop them up right we're going to encourage them let them know there's going to be troubles but press on in spite of it we're going to set organization we're going to structure leadership in the church hopefully they have somebody to look to you know it's always encouraging it's always encouraging that if you're going down a path you've never been before if somebody's in front of you that's been there there's someone ahead of you. I've read too many stories, people in the army and everything else. They talked about being new, uh, new, new people in the army, privates or whatever. And they're doing things that they only did, you know, in practice, not in the hostile environment. And then whenever it came the real thing, you know what they're looking for? The people that are veterans that had been there before. And there was a certain amount of comfort that's brought to them even in a hostile environment because they could follow the one that was before them because they had been in a situation like that before. So thank God for that leadership. But ultimately, folks, I'll tell you this. Ultimately, we just place you in the hands of God. Just place you in the hands of God. That's hard. It's hard sometimes to place people in the hands of God. He's a living God. Place them though in the hands of a living God. And they'll just make a choice. Like Jew and Gentile ever since that day Ford have made. They'll make a choice. They'll either put all these things from them. Or they'll embrace them. They'll be obedient. Or they'll disobey. And whatever their choice is. Even in the process. 
They're not just making a choice for the then. They're making a choice if it goes unchanged for the later destiny. Eternal damnation or eternal life. We embower our heads in this place here tonight. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.